Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 95, Adrian I. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. Hey everyone, so if you remember from last week, everything was going crazy in Rome. There were two or three factions. There was a pro-Lombard side, there was an anti-Lombard side with Stephen III caught in the middle. And the most important officials, Christopher and Sergius, had been killed, or in in case of Sergius, he had been disappeared. And a pro-Lombard papal official named Paul Iafarta was seizing control and kind of consolidating his power in Rome. It was brutal and dirty and scandalous. But today, we are quite blessed because we get to talk about a really great pope who did a ton for Rome and for Western civilization as a whole, and who, with the help of the great Frankish King Charles, who we know as Charlemagne or Charles the Great, ushered in the period known as the Carolingian Renaissance. So this is going to be a little bit longer of an episode, but it's an awesome pope we get to talk about. So let's meet him. We're going to talk about Adrian, or Hadrian, as you might sometimes see his name written with an H. He was the son of a fairly successful Roman noble, and he was orphaned at an early age. So he was raised by his uncle, a powerful and pious papal official known as Theodosius. Apparently, as a young man, Adrian was known for his holiness and his care of the poor. He spent hours in prayer at the Church of San Marco, which is today just off the Piazza Venezia in the heart of Rome. And he was ordained to the subdiaconate by St. Paul I, and then ordained a deacon by Stephen III. As Stephen III was dying amidst the chaos and the political machinations of Paul Iafarta, the Roman people got together and unanimously decided they were going to elect Adrian the Pope as soon as Stephen III died. And this they did probably in order to prevent Paul from imposing a pro-Lombard patsy on the papal throne. So Adrian was consecrated on February 9th, 772, and as soon as he was elected, he recalled from exile all of Paul Iafarta's enemies. So, you know we're going to have to talk about the Lombards. We've been talking about them for a long time now. Desiderius, the king of the Lombards, sent an envoy to Rome, telling the Pope that they just wanted to be friends and that he would restore the Roman territory that they had taken from them. And we have heard this story before. I feel like we've heard this story a ton of times. The Lombards say, sure, we'll give you back the territory you want. You know, maybe even the Pope goes out and meets with them and makes a deal, and the deal is great and everyone's excited, but it's not actually going to happen. Adrian decided to give him a shot, so he sent two envoys, a man named Stephen and Paul Iafarta himself, off to the Lombard capital of Pavia to negotiate with Desiderius. While they were on their way to meet with Desiderius, word had come that the Lombard king had taken two more papal cities and was moving with his army south. When the envoys arrived, the Lombard king said he would restore the territory if the pope came to see him, but this was clearly a ruse. He wanted to have him in his power so then he can use the Pope as a tool against the Franks. His plan was to have the Pope anoint the sons of the now-deceased Frankish king Carloman as kings, and that way he could use them against Charles, the current ruler of the Franks. So if he gets the sons in his power and anoints them, then he's really the one in control, and then he can use that against Charles, the king of the Franks. Now, obviously, the Pope refused, but... Paul Iafarta, who's one of the envoys, is there, and he tells Desiderius on the side that the Pope would, of course, come to see him, even if it meant Paul tying him up and dragging him there by his legs. But the joke was on Paul, because one of the reasons he was sent away on the envoy 
was so that Pope Adrian could do some investigating into his past. And as soon as Paul was out of the city, people came out of hiding and told the Pope all that Paul had done to try and consolidate power, including the mysterious disappearance of the former papal official Sergius. We heard about that, if you remember, last week. The Pope called an investigation and uncovered that Paul Iafarta had had Sergius strangled in the middle of the Via Merulana. And after much fact-finding, the Pope sent a letter to the Archbishop of Ravenna, ordering him to arrest Paul on his way back from the Lombard court so that he could be tried for murder. But the Archbishop of Ravenna went beyond the Pope's express wishes and turned him over immediately to the civil government, who then executed Paul Iafarta before he could come back to Rome to stand trial. Pope Adrian wrote a really harsh rebuke to the Archbishop of Ravenna, making sure he knew his own guilt and his need for prayer and penance in killing someone before he could be justly tried in Rome. But even though his tools in Rome were now discovered and dead, Desiderius still wanted to conquer the rest of Italy, and he still wanted to force the Pope to do his bidding. So if he can't do it through trickery and through his own plants in Rome, he was going to have to find some other way to do it. So he continued his march on Rome, arriving at the borders of the Roman territory in 773. But once he got to the borders, he turned back. Why, why would he do that? What happened? Two things. First, after sending letter after letter to Desiderius asking him to turn around, the Pope finally wrote to Charlemagne in France to ask him to take action to help save Rome. And secondly, he sent three cardinal bishops to Desiderius with instructions to let him know of his excommunication if he crossed into Rome with an army. Now Charlemagne sent envoys to Italy to see what was going on, and he discovered that indeed Desiderius was attacking the Pope, and the Pope was defending himself in his territory. And the envoys offered to pay Desiderius to return the Roman territory to the Pope, but he refused. So by the fall of 773, Charlemagne had gotten together an army of his own and marched his Frankish troops over the Alps and besieged the Lombard capital of Pavia. In the middle of the siege, Charlemagne decided to visit Rome, and on Easter of 774, he met with Pope Adrian in Rome to discuss the future of Italy. And the two hashed out a bargain that Charlemagne would control most of Lombard territory, but the Ravenna, Venice, and the duchies of Spoleto and Beneventum and the rest of the traditional papal states would be given to the Pope. Now this donation, which we would call the donation of Charlemagne, or the giving of this territory to the Pope, didn't seem to go beyond what Pepin had promised to the previous popes. But now, since Charlemagne basically destroyed the Lombard states, it could actually be put into practice. Now, this had importance for another reason, since before the Lombards conquered Ravenna, it had belonged to the Byzantine Empire. But now, it was given by Charlemagne to the Pope. And this is one more sign of the decline of Byzantine influence in northern Italy. They couldn't get back their territory. Their territory now belongs to the Pope. And another sign was that at this time, the Pope started issuing coins not with the Byzantine Emperor's name, but with the Pope's, showing who was the real temporal ruler in Rome. So in June of 774, Charlemagne returned to Pavia. He accepted the surrender of Desiderius, who returned with him to France to live out the rest of his years in a monastery. And with that, the Lombard state is really finished. We started talking about them first in episode 61, when the Lombards invaded northern Italy during the pontificate of John III. And now 300 years and 40 popes later, we finally have their end. The Lombards have been bugging us for such a long time. They have been causing havoc and conquering and messing up all of northern Italy for so long, and now they are finally ended. 
Charlemagne will add northern Italy into the Frankish Empire and remove what has been a constant head- headache for the popes in just one stroke. But the Lombards won't be completely quiet. Now, we have a record of a little insurrection by the Archbishop of Ravenna in 775 with some other Lombard nobles to try and oust the Pope from his territory and Charlemagne from northern Italy, but that doesn't really go anywhere. So in all intents and purposes, the Lombards are finished. But just when you think it's all fun and games, that now we've got this great Emperor Charlemagne who is going to be the guardian of the church, it's not necessarily going to be that easy. Because just like the Roman emperors of old, he wanted to do a lot more than just be the temporal protector. If you remember when Constantine became a Christian uh, and a Christian empire emperor and was able to legalize the church, he also wanted to get involved theologically and church government-wise. And as we'll see, Charlemagne is going to do the same thing. He's going to take charge in a lot of church matters rather than leaving them to the pope. Usually he does it out of a good motive, but it's dangerous when the political and the spiritual realms kind of get mixed like that. Now, the first time we can see this was when the heresy of adoptionism popped up in what was now Muslim-controlled Spain. Adoptionism, if you remember from way back, was a form of heresy which said that Jesus was just a good man who was then adopted into the Godhead. This heresy was spread by a couple of rogue bishops in Spain, but it was opposed by the Archbishop of Toledo and by the Pope, who wrote a letter condemning it. But Charlemagne also got involved, and he convened a synod in Ratisbon in 792, which also condemned adoptionism and sent one of the main supporters of the heresy to Rome to Pope Adrian to recant his teaching. More on this later, but we need to look east first. Because for a while now, the Byzantine Empire has had two constant realities. Iconoclasm, which if you remember is the teaching that all images are heretical, and almost constant attacks from the Umayyad Caliphate out of Arabia. In October of 780, the iconoclastic emperor Leo IV died, and he was succeeded by his son, Constantine IV, who was too young to take the throne for himself. And so his mother, the Empress Irene, served as the regent. Now, Irene, while not really a saint herself, and actually, spoiler alert, in 797, she's going to depose her own son and have him blinded and imprisoned so that she could rule in her own name. Anyway, regardless, she was orthodox in regards to iconoclasm. So Irene goes to work and starts deposing the iconoclastic patriarch of Constantinople, Paul, and forcing her own candidate, a layman and a court official named Tarsisius, to the patriarchal throne. Tarsisius wrote to the Pope and other Eastern patriarchs asking for a general council to be called to settle, finally, the question of iconoclasm. The Empress Irene also wrote to the Pope asking him to come in person. Now, the Pope's response was a full-throated defense of icons as well as a request that some papal prerogatives that had been removed by previous emperors be restored. He did not attend the council himself, but he sent two legates east to represent the Roman church. And likewise, the Eastern Eastern patriarchs were unable to attend for the reason that the messages were unable to reach them as they were under the rule of the Islamic armies of the Umayyad Caliphate. But some representatives from the east were also present. After a first attempt to meet in Constantinople, but which was thwarted by some pro-iconoclast soldiers, Irene moved the council to the city of Nicaea, where it officially opened in 787, with some 350 bishops in attendance. So this is called the Second Council of Nicaea. It's one of our ecumenical councils. And the letter of Pope Adrian was read at the council in the second session, after being presented by his legates. It was asked then of the Patriarch of Constantinople whether he agreed with the letter, and he responded, Wherefore, Hadrian, the ruler of old Rome, since he was a sharer of these things, 
thus borne witness to, wrote expressly and truly to our religious emperors and to our humility, confirming admirably and beautifully the ancient tradition of the Catholic Church. And we also ourselves, having examined both in writing and by inquisition and syllogistically and by demonstration, and having been taught by the teachings of the Father, so have confessed, so do confess, and so will confess, and shall be fast, and shall remain, and shall stand firm in the sense of the letters which have just been read, receiving the imaged representations according to the ancient tradition of our Holy Fathers. And these we venerate with firmly attached affection, as made in the name of Christ our God, and of our spotless Lady, the Holy Mother of God, and of the holy angels, and of all the saints, most clearly giving our adoration and faith to the one only true God. Now, in the end, the council made several professions of faith, and I'll just read one of them to you uh, by which they officially condemn iconoclasm. The council fathers write, We, therefore, following the royal pathway and the divinely inspired authority of our holy fathers and the traditions of the Catholic Church, for as we all know, the Holy Spirit indwells in her, define with all certitude and accuracy that just as the figures of the precious and life-giving cross, so also the venerable and holy images, as well as the painting and mosaic as of other fit materials, should be set forth in the holy churches of God, and on the sacred vessels, and on the vestments, and on hangings, and in pictures both in houses and by the wayside, to wit the figure of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of our spotless holy lady, the mother of God, of the honorable angels, and of all saints, and of all pious peoples. For by so much more frequently as they are seen in artistic representation, by so much more readily are men lifted up to the memory of their prototypes, and to a longing after them. And to these should be given due salutation and honorable reverence, not indeed that true worship of faith, which pertains alone to the divine nature, but to these as to the figure and precious life-giving cross in the book of the Gospels and to the holy other objects, incense and lights may be offered according to the ancient pious custom. For the honor which is paid to the images passes on to that which the image represents, and he who reveres the image reveres it in the subject represented. For thus the teaching of our Holy Fathers, that is the tradition of the Catholic Church, which from one end of the earth to the other has received the gospel is strengthened. Thus we follow Paul, who spoke in Christ and the whole divine apostolic company and the Holy Fathers, holding fast to the traditions which we have received. So in that, that longer creed, which I just read to you, they affirm that, yes, we can give reverence to images because those images prompt our heart to recognize the true reality of the person in heaven. That when we see the image of Christ, who came to become man, and thus took on flesh and was imaged through material things, we can then see the true reality of Christ in heaven. And that these things are not to be worshipped as an idol, but rather carry us through them back to the real heavenly reality, which is the presence of Jesus in his glorified body and Mary and the saints and all the angels. The seventh ecumenical council ended and a translation was made into Latin of the Greek acts of the council and it was sent to the West. But unfortunately, the copy made its way to Charlemagne was very poorly translated. Charlemagne was feeling a little left out by the ecumenical council. The Empress Irene had broken an engagement between Charlemagne's daughter and her son, and he was worried that the Pope was getting too close to her. And apparently this aggravated already what had become a tense situation between Adrian and Charlemagne. Charlemagne, he's, he's the new emperor, isn't he? He's the new guy. He's the new power on the scene. And usually the emperor is the one who gets to go to the council and call the council. And here he is sitting back in France and not able to do what he wants to do. 
On top of all this, Adrian had heard rumors that Charlemagne had been advised to depose him and put a Frankish bishop in his pope. So when Charlemagne called a council in Frankfurt to review the acts of the Second Council of Nicaea, he was not sympathetic to the East. And then you add to that a bad translation, and Charlemagne's council outright condemned the Second Council of Nicaea for being heretical. So now Pope Adrian is in a bind. He had sent two legates to Nicaea and improved the doctrinal results, but unfortunately the other aspect of his letter to the East, the desire to restore certain prerogatives to the Roman Church, was not acted upon this. And for this he condemned both the emperor, but also didn't fully ratify the council's acts. He did approve, though, the doctrine taught, writing, We accept the council, for if we did not, and men returned to the vomit of their error, who would be responsible on the great accounting day for the loss of so many thousand Christian souls, but we ourselves? Now, on the other hand, he sent legates to Frankfurt as well, but disagreed with its condemnation of Second Nicaea. So the Pope remained silent on the issue of Frankfurt, not accepting or condemning it out loud, but biding his time. In addition to all this doctrinal and political activity with both the East and the West, we have to see what Pope Adrian did in Rome itself. Pope Adrian I was one of the great restorers of Rome, building and renovating vast areas of the city, churches, public works, etc. The aqueducts, which had been cut off by years by Lombard sieges, were repaired, and the water began to flow into the city again. In fact, the aqueduct he repaired, the Aqua Traiana, still brings water from the Lago Bracciano to the fountain of Paul V on the Janiculum Hill. And, incidentally, it brings water to the laundry machines at the Pontifical North American College where I went to seminary, so thank you for Pope Adrian for allowing me to do my laundry. Churches, likewise, that had been crumbling were restored, including his home parish of St. Mark's. And not only did Pope Adrian give to the poor, he personally cared for them. When Rome was struck by a flood in 791, he got out a boat and personally delivered supplies to those who needed them. And likewise, when fire broke out, he was the first one to run to the house and worked himself at the pumps extinguishing it. He was open and friendly with all he met, especially with the poor. Pope Adrian also played a large role in sparking what historians now call the Carolingian Renaissance, which is the revival of culture and learning which flowed from the court of Charlemagne. Adrian sent tutors, musicians, documents, and books to Charlemagne to teach the Frankish court and, most importantly, the clergy of the Frankish Empire. And one of the great lights of this time was the monk Alcuin of York, who was an incredibly talented theologian and philosopher who was in correspondence with the Pope and the main theological advisor of Charlemagne. And each time Charlemagne visited Rome, his discussions with the Pope led to greater reforms back in France and greater resources for learning and culture. And despite seeming tension between the Pope and the great Frankish king, there seems to have been a real mutual respect and love that eventually grew between them. Pope Adrian I died on Christmas Day 795, and Charlemagne, when he heard of his death, was said to have wept for him as if he had lost the son or brother who was dearest to him. And he sent tons of offerings and money to various churches throughout Europe, even in the territory of other kings, to have masses said for the Pope. Could you imagine that? One ruler sending offerings to say masses for the Pope, not only to the churches in his own territory, but to territories that were outside his own control. Charlemagne and Alcuin wrote the Pope's epitaph themselves, which will be a good conclusion for us. And it reads, Here the father of the church, the glory of Rome, has his rest. Born of noble parents, he was nobler by his virtues. The church he enriched with his gifts, the people with his holy teaching. Rome, chief city of the world, he re-erected thy walls. You are my dear love, you do I now mourn. I join our names together, Adrian and Charles. I the king, you the father. 
With the saints of God, may your dear soul rejoice. Pope Adrian I was pope for 23 years, the longest after St. Peter thus far, and he's the fifth longest pope of all time. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica and was succeeded by the 96th pope, St. Leo III, and we will learn about him next time. Thank you for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you and God bless.